0: And Hound
1: podcast.
2: Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I hope everyone has managed to keep themselves and their animals safe through the storms of the past week or so, that you haven't spent too much time hanging on to weedy bins or fences and, and that sort of thing. Our interview this week is with show jumper Jay Hallam. He talks about the biggest wins of his career, burning issues in the horse world, and how he got started in equestrianism.
3: You know, my mum ended up getting a job in the local supermarket, stacking shelves just for me to be able to have a pony. So I am a product of hard work and determination.
2: I'll be chatting to our news team about stud books in the post Brexit world and denerving in dressage horses. Finally, personal trainer Katie Bleakman gives us her insight into the importance of strength training for riders. My whole ethos as a coach and
4: helping riders
2: specifically is to really bridge that
4: gap between riding specific training, but equally making sure that we are working on progressing our strength. And in order to do that, we need to make sure that we have a really structured approach and we're thinking about goals. So
2: brush out your horse's tail and let's get going.
1: Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse & Hound, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by one of the most successful and hard-working riders on the circuit, it's the one and only Jay Hallam. Jay, welcome to the Horse & Hound podcast.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: I should actually say welcome back because you starred in our Christmas quiz at the end of last year. Um, I promise this won't be quite as taxing, okay?
3: Okay, well, I still think that it was rigged. We definitely should have won.
1: (laughs) Um, So, Jay, let's just start with a quick look back at 2021 because you enjoyed lots of big wins, but one that really stands out was that tremendous victory in the Speed Horse of the Year at Hoyes. Can you just tell us what it meant to win a class like that?
3: Yeah, it was was absolutely amazing to win there because obviously, you know... Being a British-based rider and and everything else, it's always kind of Horse of the Year show is the one that you want to win at, which Mm. is uh, lovely. I mean, I was very lucky that I won at the last Horse of the Year show, I won the Talent Seekers final with the same horse. So it was quite nice to confirm what a wonderful and brilliant horse he is. Uh, And it was my first time competing in the international classes. At horse of the year show, so it was kind of the icing on the cake. Really, it was. <laughs> it was. It was very nice and. Um it's you know it's not only nice for me but it's nice for my owners and the team that support me whether it's a you know a groom or a sponsor or whatever it just kind of confirms their belief in me hopefully
1: oh brilliant and you you beat tolly Smith on Frizzly, which is no mean feat in itself I mean what was uh, the round like what did it feel like um, competing out there
3: basically blink and you miss it um, <laughs> um, you know Holly is such a fast rider, and Frizzly at that kind of height is is pretty unbeatable yeah. um, but we actually had beat them previously in the Bolsworth Grand Prix, so you know I knew that I could if it was right yeah he's he's an incredible horse, he absolutely gives you your heart you know, his heart every single time. So he's a pretty special horse.
1: Absolutely. And what's he like to ride then? Is he easy, is he straightforward or does he have his sort of quirks as you go along? Yeah,
3: I mean he's incredibly I find him incredibly easy. He goes in a little snaffle. Mm -hmm. Um I think that if you stuck a girl on him they could go and win a gold medal at the Europeans. He's he's very easy. He has his little quirks. I kind of like him quite hot and a little bit sharp I think because he's quite a small horse. and probably not the scopiest in the world. You know, I like to have him quite hot and running to, 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 to jump. But like I say, his heart is incredible. You know, he uh-huh. has such a desire to jump and clear the fences. So yeah. um, the, 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 the little quirks are actually kind of relatively small. You know, he's, he, he's very straightforward.
1: Oh, and he's absolutely stunning as well. Like every picture that we sort of printed in the magazine is just—he looks amazing. Well, you both do, obviously. But
3: <laughs> well, he always looks better than I do. I've got a lower leg like a ballerina, so my pictures <laughs> are never so good. But um, yeah, no, he's—he's he's very special. And I mean, the—the—the the, the, the story behind him is that we bought him at his early sixth year, and I'd been looking for a very, very long time to um, find a horse to invest for his owner, Duncan Arthurs. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I tried him, I liked him, but I didn't think he was a superstar. I just thought he was a very nice commercial girl's horse that would probably suit the American market because he was beautiful and, you know, jumped really nicely. Um, And it was very evident quite early on that he just tried incredibly hard. Oh, wow.
1: And you can't ask for more than that in a horse, really, can you? It's, uh... No,
3: absolutely, absolutely. And, I, I, you know, it's a really kind of cheesy thing, but the heart means everything. You can have these big flash jumpers that don't try, where well. yeah. give me a horse that tries that maybe isn't as talented or looks. It doesn't look as flashy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's still flashy anyway, but you know what I mean. He, exactly. He's very workmanlike and gets the job done
1: yeah oh lovely and what other horses have you got in your top string at the moment which ones are you out and about with at the moment
3: i've, I've got a bit of a mixed string if i'm being really honest we're having a bit of a shuffle round. Okay. um i've got an interesting horse called ghostbuster who uh was previously an eventer ridden by victoria panazon
0: oh, yeah. um
3: he hasn't done an awful lot of indoor show jumping i'm just kind of stepping him up to 140 classes to see if he's going to be like a ranking horse or not. He could kind of be quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've got another couple that I had jumped last year, Staccato's Boy, who was jumping some 140s and about to do some ranking classes again. And then I've literally got a mix. I've just got a very exciting new horse that's eight years old that I've done one show with who I'm hoping might take top spot this year. Oh, what's that one called? He is called Just Do It, actually. Um, I've got some new investors uh, that have invested into him and... um, yeah, I, I'm hoping that he'll jump some Grand Prix this year, which will be really nice for Aragon because he's basically had to carry the weight of the whole team the last three or four years. So it would be really nice to take the pressure off him so, yeah, and then we've got a, there's a five-year-old stallion that we actually purchased from the Bolesworth auction as a young horse. Oh, yes. Um, he's called Midnight. He hasn't yet made his show debut, but he is quite exciting. So, you know, you, you never know in their fifth and sixth year what you've got, but he's it, there's some but... pretty amazing things at home. So
1: Oh, my goodness. Very exciting. What's he like to ride then? Is he um, definitely filling you with all the right thoughts?
3: The, the the midnight, the stallion, yes, he is, he is. He felt incredible when I started off and he started growing and he's just gone a little bit lumpy in the ride. So <laughs> I've, to be honest, he just goes out in the paddock every oh. day and then he's doing some hacking. I'm I'm a firm believer in kind of taking time with the young horses and mm. I'm not rushing to do any five-year-old classes or get yeah. him out. I'm going to just wait for his balance to come back first because... I think that you can ruin their jump if you start trying to do too much with them, you know, when their balance is changing, when they're growing.
1: Yeah, critical times, isn't it? You've got to do it the right way. And you're also, you're very well known for your successful breeding programme. You've produced some absolute crackers. You are competing at the top level now. Do you get as much satisfaction watching them go on to do well?
3: Absolutely, yeah. The the, the breeding side of things, uh, you know, it's my guilty pleasure. (laughs) Um, My first homebred is, I think he's 12 this year, and he did his first five-star last year which is really exciting. Um, so I predominantly bred some eventers, but we've got some jumpers that are coming through. They're only kind of the ones out the proper jumping mares would be um, kind of two this time. And this year we've actually got ten foals due. Um, we've got some really interesting bloodlines. I've got uh, two in foal to Foltic that Ben Mayer's now riding. Uh, three-in-fold to my young stallion, which is the Camilfo numero uno, uh, wow. a couple-in-fold to Derby, my stallion that I jumped up to world ranking classes, who's Verdi, one by Cape Coral and another by asker Zed. So yeah, there's, there's there's quite a variation this year.
1: That's fantastic. And do you enjoy all the sort of researching and choosing the stallions as that side of it as well? I mean, is that you say it was your guilty pleasure. Is that your sort of homework and downtime yeah I I love it I love it and
3: I'm kind of taking pride in our our system so far we I I won't breed from a mare that doesn't have good x-rays and I'm trying to produce healthy fit sports horses you know we've had a couple that could have been dressage horses or jumpers or eventers and For me, it's not specifically breeding a show jumper or an eventer. I'm trying to breed good types and healthy types, and so far, we, you know, we're very much into kind of X-raying them them when they're two and making sure that the mares are producing good X-rays and that we're getting the right combination and you know, touch wood so far, my system seems to be successful, you know, with that and producing good x-rays and healthy, fit horses. So yeah, I'm I'm really pleased with the way it's going.
1: And um, you do a lot of training as well, don't you? Is that something you enjoy um, as well? You've got some big names that you've been working with.
3: Yeah, I, I'm fortunate. I love training. I've kind of I had to learn the hard way a bit myself so i kind of <laughs> like a sponge and try and absorb as much as i possibly can yeah i like passing on the knowledge that i've learned so far and you know i've i'm kind of fortunate that i've you know like you said got some fairly big names and we've been very successful you know laura collett was on the team last year and got a gold i had victoria on. Uh, at the games, and she's an Italian rider, and then obviously Laura winning a five star and Molly Summerland winning a five star oh yeah um you know i've I've had some pretty good results or been you know involved in um you know those situations so yeah i love it and it's kind of i always think that i can't ride forever uh and won't ride forever so i am kind of laying down my foundations for, for for later life
1: oh i love it well you're doing a great job of it so it's good to see um and actually just looking back then to how it all began for those who may not know you you didn't have the most straightforward route into the sport did you tell us how you first started riding
3: Um, so I used to go to the local riding stables when I was young my parents are completely non-horsey and you know we'd go down and have a riding lesson and then the next thing was I'd be there the whole weekend and mucking out and it kind of evolved from there really so um, we had ponies on loan and you know my parents provided the absolute best that they could but you know my poor mum ended up getting a job in the local supermarket stacking shelves just for me to be able to have a pony so I'm you know incredibly grateful that my parents worked as hard as they did for me to have what I had but at the same time it's non-comparable to some of the uh, opportunities that other people had around me if that makes sense so (laughs) um, but I think that was also the drive behind me, and uh, I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky that they gave me everything that they, they could, but obviously in this industry, it's kind of never enough.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um,
3: without sounding ungrateful, but um, but um, I, you know, I, I I am a product of hard work and mm-hmm. determination, and. I work very hard.
1: Absolutely, and um, you spent some time with the Fletchers as well, didn't you? In this, in the process, and uh, I know Graham has spoken in Horse and Hand quite recently about the, you know, hard work and taking every opportunity, and that's something you believe in as well, isn't it?
3: Absolutely, yeah. I think um, we're in a world of that. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people with a lot of money in the sport, and mm-hmm. I think there's a kind of there is a couple of generations of Riders and kids that I'm not saying that they don't work hard, but they've had a lot of opportunities. And Mm -hmm. I think that they're, you know, in all walks of life, not just the equestrianism, but, you know, people don't want to work as hard for, you know, or fight for it. I don't think, you know, as I did or other people have done in the past. Uh, And I think it kind of reflects that some of, you know, some of the younger riders are incredible riders, but. I don't see much horsemanship. I think that's been lost a little bit. You know, like I say, I I can still do everything. I, you know, at horse a year show, I was there without a groom and patted the horses up each day and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Where I I don't think many of these younger riders could could do it on their own kind of thing. Uh, which is fortunate for them. It is fortunate yeah. for them. And 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 I and I don't knock it in the slightest. But I think. I, I I just I just think that that's how we're evolving of. You know, it's a little bit like our lack of staff situation at the moment. Everybody's looking for grooms, and it isn't a tough job, but it's a really rewarding job, and and nobody wants to work.
1: What do you think the problem is stemming from? Then is it just uh, a lack of people at the moment out there wanting to do the the hard graft? I think
3: in all again in all walks of life, there seems to be a struggle with. You know, I've got friends in the hospitality industry, and they're struggling to get members of staff, and. I don't think it's just the equestrian world. Um I don't know. It's it's really difficult. I you know, I left home at 17 and like mm-hmm. you say went and worked at the fletchers and served my apprenticeship there and mm-hmm. it's set me in good stead because I learned how to work and and I continue to do so and I like I say I I learned a lot there and have a very good relationship with Tina and Graham. And everything and it's good but I, I think you know even now we're kind of advertising for uh, a riding role and a grooming role and you know people that come in to ride don't want to do yard work or they kind of expect to have a string of horses handed to them and you know that never happened for me and I don't yeah, think it's it's
1: not real life is it
3: it's it's not real life so I think it's yeah it's it's a real tough one I just I just I think it's a generational thing to be honest
1: yeah definitely make
3: myself sound really old right (laughs) now
1: well I was gonna a real
3: moany old man
1: (laughs) this is what happens when you're about to turn I'm allowed to say you're about to turn 40 this year this is (laughs) you turn into a grumpy old man
3: (laughs) yeah I am that grumpy old man but uh yeah no it's it's really hard I mean you know my last um the, the, the last girl that worked for me was with me for six and a half years she worked really hard and oh, I gave her opportunities, she got to ride at all the international shows uh, and the nice shows. she got to ride a global champions tour and really? I try and give back I feel like I'm really fair but at the same time she worked extremely hard and deserved the opportunities where other people then see that and think oh well if I go there I might get that opportunity but I'm not going to put you know, bend over backwards for people that aren't going to, you know, work as hard as, you know, previous people have.
1: Exactly. Yeah. What advice would you give to sort of young riders and people starting out now then? Is it, is it that working hard mentality? Do you think you've just got to have that mindset?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think on paper, uh, you know, if you'd looked at my upbringing and my situation, You would struggle to see the journey that I've been on, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as a younger me. And I think that, uh, you know, it is getting harder and harder to do it. But Mm -hmm. I think that I went and served my apprenticeship, and I worked very hard for it, and put myself in situations to get opportunities. You know, nothing's been handed to me on a plate. Everything I've done, I've I've worked for it.
1: Exactly. Was there ever a plan B? I mean, did you, was horses always going to be the the end point for you? Yeah, that
3: or being on the stage or something. Oh,
1: <laughs> I can't <laughs> imagine that.
3: <laughs> no, I don't know why, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I quite like music and um, acting and stuff like that. Not yeah. saying that I'm any good at it, <laughs> but, anyway, but uh, I always kind of liked the arts, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Um, oh well, it's lucky for us that you uh, persevered and here you are
3: you know the really funny thing is I just feel like I'm far from making it I feel like I've got uh, uh, you know a lot more to do for me it's, yes. it's really funny when you every time you climb another step you take a moment and you're like oh well that's good well I've done that now and it was a little bit like when I won at Horse of the Year show for the first time and you're like right box ticked yeah, what's yeah. next and <laughs> (laughs) And that's what I think keeps me going. And, you know, like I've just come to Kiso again. And yesterday I rode my first two horses abysmally. So I've hardly been in a ring since October. And, you know, people kind of think that if you start winning big classes and stuff, that you're kind of always perfect. Well, I still make mistakes, you know, it's it's only human. And, And then actually yesterday I finished off second in the big class with Aragon and he jumped very well. But my other two horses, poor them had a terrible ride. Oh, <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, you're always learning and always, yeah. you know, we still have bad days. Yeah, they're the
1: they're best levelers, aren't they, the horses? Uh, keep you on your toes.
3: Just trying to be gracious and humble about it. I mean, I literally rode like a wally yesterday <laughs> until the last class of jump off. So, um, You remembered you know, what to do. Exactly. When it came to the speed bit, I uh, suddenly remembered. Uh, uh, so, no, no, that's... Um, yeah, no. So it's, it's a funny old industry, but um, yeah. I, I'm very grateful that I'm doing something that I'm absolutely passionate about, and I love the sport. I'm I'm mad for the sport. I
1: mean, what is it that sort of drives you? What do you love most about it, then?
3: I think I'm just incredibly competitive in what <laughs> yeah. I do. Um, and, you know, I, I love horses. I just find it completely, I could literally, when we went to Spain the other year, I could, when I had a moment, I just love sitting and watching, watching how people work in differently. Oh, yeah. I kind of, everybody processes learning in a different way and mine is kind of visually and watching. And oh, yeah. I, I, I find it, absolutely fascinating watching and I you know I've been incredibly lucky to you know be surrounded by other people like when Laura Kraut and Nick Skelton were in the country more before Brexit Mm. um, they were incredibly kind to me and helped me and I'd go to Laura's for um, for training And Nick would be there, and they've helped me at shows. And you know, people can be incredibly kind in this industry. And I have to say, I'm incredibly grateful of how amazing they've been. And you know, I feel like they've always been there for me, which is just so nice. You know, you meet some incredibly nice people.
1: Yeah, who are there to help. And you know, it's not constant rivalry. You know, people do look out for each other, don't they? It's a great. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's a really lovely community.
1: Yeah, fantastic. And then just looking ahead then to this year, you said you're already out and about, uh, up and running. Um, What are the plans for 2022?
3: I'm hoping that the, the, the new horse Just Do It kind of steps up to Grand Prix smoothly this year. And then I've got a bit more of a team to campaign you know, obviously heading abroad is the option because you know we're lacking international shows in this country still. Yeah. Um, but it just, you know, there's no point me going abroad with only one ranking horse. You know, obviously world ranking classes get get you points and the prize money is of a minimum of like £6,000. Yeah. So, you know, there's no point taking 130 and 140 horses abroad. You've got to have horses for the ranking classes, which are a metre 45 and above. So I'm trying to build up a string of horses for that and just see, I mean, like I say, the, the staffing situation is stopping me a little bit from oh, moving God. forward. Yeah. And also the fact that we start foaling next month. Of course. Um, uh, you know, I've got 10 foals to follow and so I have to do everything. So it's just, yeah, see, see how the team goes. And yeah. kind of, uh, I would like to go and do some of the Three Star Nations Cups in the summer uh, is something that I'd really like to do. You know it's another box that i want ticking
1: yeah
3: <laughs> <laughs> um i don't forward plan so to speak because i i think it's really hard to do that in the situation you know i'm doing it with fairly limited funds yeah. and i'm committed to the people that i teach and my you know breeding program so it is hard to forward clan i mean i obviously do your the the bigger national international shows in this country like bowlsworth and hickstead and and probably the london london global tour and then fit uh, other shows in around
1: that brilliant are there particular classes that you have on your sort of bucket list as well i mean other big sort of hickstead derbies and things like that or do you not even sort of Aim for particular classes.
3: Yeah, I'd love to jump around the Derby, but I haven't really had one for it yet. I'm still yet to win a world ranking class, which is I should have won several by now. But I've tried <laughs> too hard when I've got in the jump off. Oh so, no! Um, so I yeah, I mean I've won international grand Prixs, but I haven't won any kind of international world ranking grand prix. So yeah, I'd like to win some ranking classes. Uh, you know, this year as well. So that's kind of this year's bucket list, and yeah. obviously, it being the year of the tiger, I'm, oh yes, I'm, kind of fully, <laughs> I'm fully expecting that this is going to be my year to do so.
1: So I like it. Of course, you're Jay Tiger Hallam on social media, aren't you? Yeah. Um, we're lacking international shows in this country at the moment, Jay. What are your thoughts on that? Well,
3: I mean, obviously, we've got Nina at Bolesworth, Nina Barber, who's running Bolesworth and Liverpool, who has um, been amazing and trying to do something different to everybody else, which is amazing. And Hickstead, uh, mm. which, again, you know, they're kind of two of my big favourite outdoor shows in this country, which are amazing. And then we've got some smaller centres that are kind of on the climb, that are trying to, to, to run some international shows. Uh, Again, I'm here at Kiso at the moment and uh, it's a very nice show and, you know, things are changing here for the better and, you know, they've already cancelled next month's show, which seems to be a real shame because they're feeling like they're unsupported, but... I think that we need to get behind these shows and support them. you know, I've had a few comments at the show here that they shouldn't maybe run Winter Internationals, but I actually completely disagree. I think if they ran Internationals, Mm -hmm. then, you know, if we can have two Winter Internationals a month in England, it would stop people from travelling abroad so much. And and I, I think, actually, it's them being advised better with schedules, like at this show here at the moment, and they've got a two-star and a young horse class, where m- my personal view is, actually, if they had run a one-star mm-hmm. and not had young horses, most of the young horses aren't particularly ready to go and start indoors, and it's probably cheaper to jump them under British show jumping rules than jumping them internationally at this point of the year. I think if they had a one star and a two star each winter international show, then mm-hmm. they would have had more people attend. Right. But, so, you, yeah. know, you know, I, I'm fully aware that international shows for, you know, the show centres, they, they make a loss. Well, um, yeah. And I think, I think it's down to British show jumping and the riders to fully support them and get behind them. But at the same time, they need to be advised properly. And I think, that, uh, I think basically we've got the schedule wrong. But uh, I think it's important to have internationals in this country because we've got, uh, you know, in comparable to Europe, we're very behind. And I know everybody's been saying it after year and year, but I think if we just keep the standards of the courses up mm-hmm. um, and still offer some world ranking classes... I think that when we go, you know, people won't want to travel abroad as much and it will save us an awful lot of money (laughs) since the Brexit situation. It's
1: crazy, isn't it? Well, let's hope the show centres are listening and uh, we see something come of it. Uh, Let's hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jay, it's been an absolute pleasure as always, and we're looking forward to following your progress this year. Very exciting times, especially with this new horse as well. So um, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast.
3: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
2: So I'm joined today by two members of our news team, first of all our news editor
0: Eleanor Jones. Hi Eleanor, how's it going? Oh, good, thank you. The wind finally seems to have stopped. Like everyone else, we got a bit battered. Although we had <laughs> quite an entertaining thing, which maybe won't be entertaining for those people who suffer power cuts. But although power was still going out everywhere, Storm Eunice made a security light in the yard work that hadn't worked for years.
2: <laughs> that is very strange. And yeah. if I was an electrical engineer, I'd try to explain why, but I'm not. <laughs> no, it must
0: have maybe blown a loose connection together or something. But it's happy days because it's the light that goes onto the mug heap. So now if I had muck out in the dark, I could actually see what I'm doing.
2: (laughs) Oh, great. So it blew a loose connection into a tight connection, if that's the opposite of a loose connection. must have done. oh i was very relieved i have to say i was meant to go show jumping on saturday and i was very relieved that it cancelled because if they hadn't cancelled the event i would have had to decide whether to withdraw or not and that is always much harder than an event just being cancelled or being like well i can't go anywhere i'll just have a little jump at home so yeah i was pleased about that as a result (laughs) we also have with us becky murray our senior news writer becky is the weather very bad in scotland
5: we actually got off quite lightly, I think, this time round. Um, we had snow at the weekend, but that has disappeared, and now everything's just lovely and wet and muddy. My horse loves rolling, dropping down, and rolling in like pools of water in the field and has she loves it so um as long as she's happy
2: <laughs> at least she's not gray i don't think is she <laughs> no mm. no she's done <laughs> okay that's better yeah my mum has just sent a picture of um, she's just clipped alfie out so he had a blanket clip and he's just had his back off ready for going eventing in the spring and uh, so now he looks
0: particularly clean where that bit's come off which hasn't had a chance to get dirty all winter so yeah <laughs> my, my horse is also done but um she is a grey. she's just done at the moment <laughs> <laughs>
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, on to the serious news. Becky, I'm coming to you first this week. You have had the opportunity to be our Brexit correspondent this week, something everybody (laughs) wants to do, I know. Um, We're talking about stud books. Can you start by giving us a reminder of the background to this story? What is changing for stud books in the the post-Brexit
5: world? So, last year we reported that following Brexit, um, EU stud books would need to apply to DEFRA for something called an extension of breeding territory, and this also applies vice versa. Now, this is basically the permission for stud books such as KWPN or Oldenburg to still be able to register British bred horses and when we reported on this last year we actually found out Oldenburg was one stud book that had been rejected which obviously caused some concerns for breeders who prefer to use this stud book.
2: Okay and do we know how many stud books have sort of applied to to operate and how many have been approved?
5: Yes, so DEFRA confirmed to me that a hundred and six applied and only seven were approved. So that's you know, a huge amount not on that list. Um the whole Steiner study book is on the list, but the likes of Cell Francais, Oldenburg, KWPN are not. Now, Cell Francais confirmed to me they had been rejected, but it's not actually clear if KWN applied or not. Basically, Defra said at the time last year that stud books would only be approved if there was not a UK equivalent already. So it could be that some stud books took the decision not to apply at all, if in reality there was no chance of them being approved. And stud books can still apply, so it's not necessarily the end of the road.
2: Okay, and I know that you spoke to Eva Maria Brumer. She is the World Breeding Federation for Sport Horses Vice President and also Head Evaluator for the UK Anglo-European
5: Studbook. You spoke to her for this story. What did she say about it? Well, Eva Maria said there are some solutions. Studbooks can open up daughter studbooks. For example, just before Brexit, the UK Anglo European studbook opened up a daughter studbook in the Netherlands to allow registration of horses to continue there. And EU studbooks such as Oldenburg or KWPN could open up a studbook here, which would allow British bred horses to continue to be registered with them. But not all EU studbooks seem to be keen on this idea. Oldenburg told me they had considered this, but they're not going ahead with this and they actually felt a daughter stud book could be seen as inferior, which is not the Oldenburg aspiration, is what they said. Now, another solution is the UK applying to the EU Commission for something called an Article 35, which grants basically equivalent terms, meaning that registration between these stud books can continue. But this is a lengthy legal process and Defra told me it's still considering if this would be beneficial to breeders or not. Okay, Um, and other
2: reactions to the story, who else did you speak to and what did they say?
5: I spoke to one breeder Caroline Ironside of MFS Stud Farm who has used Oldenburg for a long, long time and you know she's disappointed because she likes having her stock judged by the foreign judges that would come over from Germany and she likes being registered with a German studbook, so horses can then compete in the German Bundeschampionat. But on the other hand, Eva Maria said, this is the opportunity for UK studbooks to really step up. And I spoke to the British Hanoverians, and they see the move as, Quite a positive one, and um, it gets more mares into the UK studbook, and they use the same database as Oldenburg, so they do actually have the same access to DNA profiles and performance data. Now, the British Hanoverians do plan to increase their offering this year too, because they're going to see an increase in registrations. So they'll be holding a UK-wide tour in addition to their regional shows, and offer performance testing for horses from other studbooks too. Okay. Well,
2: thank you, Becky, for explaining that to us. As ever with Brexit, it's not straightforward, but hopefully there are opportunities as well as downsides there for some breeders and stud books. Eleanor, we have a story this week in the magazine about rules around denerving and neurectomies. Can you run us through sort of what these procedures involve and and what has happened that's led to this story coming about at at this point?
0: Yeah, so this is a, a British dressage rule, a BD rule, which um, BD uh, has confirmed has been in place for, for several years, but they have clarified it in the 2022 rulebook, um, specifically mentioning neurectomy. And it says a horse isn't, uh, is not eligible to compete when a limb or part of a limb is hypo or hypersensitive. And hyposensitive limbs include any alteration uh, induced by a neurectomy or chemical desensitization. and is is denerving, essentially.
2: Okay. And so it's a procedure whereby all or part of a nerve is cut to relieve pain of some sort. But I know that it is quite a broad term. It covers a lot of variations. That's right, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So we spoke to Lucy Grieve, who is a, the immediate past president of the British Equine Veterinary Association. And she told us that, as with many things, the answer is never black and white, because she said, it depends on which procedure you're talking about. And, and most of the time, the, the FEI, which BD has based its rule on, is talking about proximal sense ligament neurectomies. And she says with those cases, there's a very low risk of catastrophic injury if you choose them carefully, which all vets should do. And she says we we don't often see them breaking down if if everything else is healthy and they've got good confirmation. But with Palmer digital neurectomies, where the sensation to the whole foot is removed, then of course there is much more of a significant risk of injury if they're not managed very carefully so she says it's you know uh, like I say it's not black and white and even in terms of horse welfare it's not black and white. Mm. And I know that we have a rider quoted in the story whose horse has had a partial neurectomy what did she say? So yeah, two years ago, her vet found the horse um, had caused had some issues with her suspensory ligament, which was caused by an, a hock injury that she'd suffered as a two-year-old. And the vet said that partial neurectomy would mean the horse would be more comfortable and that she would be allowed to compete uh, in BD classes. So the mayor had the procedure, eighteen months of rehab, and she said uh, the horse is some the tension and unpredictability she could sometimes show is much better. She's relaxed, she's happy, um, and and then she. She's now mortified, she said, to discover that this decision she took in the best interests of her horse now means she can't compete BD.
2: Mm, That is a really tricky one, isn't it? There's Mm. a lot of kind of ethical questions there. I know you spoke to World Horse Welfare CEO Rowley Hours as
0: well. He commented for the story. What did he say? so, so World Horse Welfare said they've welcomed the BD clarification um, and and their take is that because denerving procedures can mask pain they don't think it's ethical to compete a horse after it's had one I mean they've also said it's complicated because different neurectomies can be done um, and there are cases where the nerves can regrow which means there's regained sensitivity but it, it, one thing that um, rodeo has said and the rider we spoke to also said is that maybe there should be disclosure in horse horse's passports as if they've had one.
2: Yeah, and policing was part of the the comment the British Dressage gave us as well, saying that it's not easy that they rely on honesty and personal responsibility, but BD will investigate any horses that are reported as suspected to have had surgery. And that rule, as BD say, has been in place for some years for BD and other governing bodies, but it's being brought to the fore by that clarification and BD say they have the rule on welfare grounds and in the interests of a level playing field. So obviously, you know, good reasons to have that sort of rule, but it does throw up a lot of issues. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much, Eleanor, and to Becky for joining us today too. So now we're going over to Katie Bleakman, an online fitness coach and personal trainer specializing in equestrian athletes. Katie has evented to a high level, winning Team Silver at the Eventing Pony Europeans and now riders all over the world can benefit from her online coaching programme, Event Rider Fitness. Over to you, Katie. On this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about why every rider should be strength
4: training or doing some form of functional training to help support and better their riding my whole ethos as a coach and helping riders specifically is to really bridge that gap between riding specific training but equally making sure that we are working on progressing our strength And in order to do that, we need to make sure that we have a really structured approach and we're thinking about goals. So most of the time, you'll find that maybe you struggle with a bit of a physical lack of strength or endurance towards the end of a cross-country course, or maybe towards the end of a dressage test, you start to become physically and probably a bit mentally fatigued. Maybe you struggle with uh, a bit of lower back pain or pain in your hip flexors, and you know you're not riding as well as you could be or riding out at your best. And you might do Pilates or yoga a few times a week, or maybe add some band movements in, or do a hit session now and again, or maybe you follow Joe Wicks. But at the end of the day, these things, and especially not doing them consistently, just aren't enough to progressively build your strength. So what we wanna be focusing on here is making sure that we are working our compound movements. So compound movements are multi-joint exercises. Things like squats things like push-ups where we are working multiple muscles and joints at the same time and this is going to make sure that we are building your strength we will need to be applying progressive overload so that you're gradually getting stronger over time whether that is adding more weight onto the bar whether that is doing more sets and reps or there's other ways to apply progressive overload as well maybe changing the movement slightly so say you are currently doing a goblet squat you're holding a weight up at your chest and you're squatting If you've got your technique and your movement proficiency really strong in that, then one way to really progressively overload your system would be to move you up the movement continuum. So move up to a more technical and more advanced exercise, just like you would take your horse from, uh, say, a leg yield into a shoulder in. You could then start to progress yourself to maybe a front rack squat. So you go into the squat rack and you lift your elbows up. So elbows are up towards the ceiling and the bar rests across the palm of your hand and your collarbone. This is quite a technical movement, so make sure that you have a coach or you have a trainer on hand to watch and make sure that you're doing it safely but that's one way to apply overload as well things like tempo so manipulating the speed you're moving at that's another really great way to help your body get stronger and thinking about riding specific movement patterns so making sure that we're taking our knees through flexion and extension the same with our hips flexion extension when we're riding we are quite often uh, pulling so making sure that we've got a good amount of pull work in i've spoken in a previous episode before about keeping your course uh, work specific to your riding movement patterns, so making sure anti-extension, anti-lateral flexion, and anti-rotation movements are all in there so that you're getting stronger in these movements. And like I said, the only way you're going to get stronger is by progressing yourself through load or through the movement continuum and exposing yourself to more technical movements. And from a training and a strength point of view, um, the only way you're going to cause your muscles to hypertrophy, hypertrophy is when the muscle grows, it gets bigger. The only way you're going to do this is by causing damage to the muscle, and that is going to be done by resistance training, by lifting loads. And that could be even just training two to three times a week. The volume, so the amount of work done across the training week is what causes the muscle to adapt and respond and In essence get stronger so making sure that you're hitting the right amount of volume across the week is what you want to focus on and I know a lot of you will probably hear me say hypertrophy muscles get bigger oh my god I'm gonna turn into the Hulk or you're gonna have uh, shoulders the size of a rugby player that's just not going to happen unless you're lifting very very heavy loads when I say very heavy loads I'm talking about lifting for uh, three to five reps maybe you could lift uh, five sets but you'd be having two three minutes of rest and you're lifting seriously heavy loads as well as eating in a calorie surplus so that means you're over consuming you're eating more calories than your body needs in order to uh, be able to lift those loads and get a strength response so don't think that you're going to turn into the Hulk from lifting heavy you need to make sure that you're applying enough uh, resistance and enough of a stimulus to get a response and as you improve your strength you'll find that in turn your stamina improves your resistance fatigue is going to be uh, higher you're going to be able to handle a greater amount of workload whether that's in a training session or whether that is when you're out riding and at the end of the day what this all means is that you're going to be able to spend uh, a longer time in the seat or a longer time out riding which is going to be more enjoyable and again you're going to be safer in the saddle I know I've spoken a few times previously about safety in the saddle but it is such a key part of rider fitness we all know whatever discipline we do even if it is just going for a hack or a ride out now and again it's a dangerous sport we're on an unpredictable animal and accidents do happen so the strong and the fitter you are the safer the sport is going to be and uh, you know it's a demanding sport it's hard work you're going to be able to handle all of the challenges that are thrown at you much much better and we need to make sure as well as the strength side of things that we are still stressing and working our anaerobic and aerobic system so anaerobic is your uh, short intense work so things like working really hard for 30 seconds maybe you're running on the spot or you're doing some squat jumps then you rest then you go again. So that hit type of training versus your steady state aerobic that's more low uh, intensity continuous so something like going for a swim or a run but we need to have both of these systems uh, as fit as possible. And ultimately that's going to help in your strength work as well. Again, you're going to be able to handle more fatigue, but it's making sure that we are as fit and as strong in all areas because those demands are upon us when we are riding. And I know I've said this before, but you spend so much time and money on your horse. And the last thing you want to do is have paid you know, your British Eventing entry, you've paid your membership for the year, and then you get to the last combination on the cross country course, you're four minutes in and you have a silly run out because you're just fatigued or you're not strong enough as your horse has got tired to really hold him. So, you're going to get more out of your horse the stronger you are. Your brain function and your cognitive function is going to be much better as well as you'll be able to resist fatigue. And you ultimately should have the same expectations uh, for yourself as you do your horse. And you might think, what do I mean by that? But you wouldn't take your horse out to an event or to a show jumping show or to a uh, trail ride or a, a fun ride if. If he was unfit or if he hadn't done enough work so why would you think that it's okay for yourself to not be fit enough or not have done enough work and ride at that level of fitness or or lacking that level of fitness so really start to think about how your strength and improving your strength or adding some functional training in, could really boost your riding and make sure that you get the absolute most out of your season or your horse this year For any more information on any of the topics that we've discussed today, you can head to my Instagram platform and feel free to DM me or ask for any advice at kkbleekman underscore equestrianpt.
2: Thank you, Katie. Katie will be back next week to talk about balancing fitness, riding and a social life, something I think we can all use advice on. Our interview will be with Stuart Hollings, our showing columnist, He talks about his judging memories and tips for new judges. Plus, of course, we'll talk about the week's news as usual. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us a review in your podcast app. We'd love to hear what you think. Have a great week. Goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.